0: Yeah. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. This week, I report back from Conservative Party Conference in Birmingham.
1: Helen and I discuss The Telegraph, Boris Johnson and the new left media.
0: And you ask us, is it okay to still enjoy the music of Kanye West? Hello, I'm quite literally fresh from the train. So actually, not that fresh. Mouldy and kind of smelly from the train. I'm joined by Anoush, who very sensibly was not in Birmingham, to talk about our impressions of Conservative Party conference, how we think it went. So, Anoush, the weird thing, as you'll, you'll know, uh, having been at what? So this would have been your first in how many years that you weren't at uh, uh,
1: Six, seven.
0: Six, seven. Wow. Get less than that for murder. Um, but um, <laughs> the thing that's always weird when you're there is MPs will continually ask, well, how do you think it's going? and you're kind of just like to be honest your guess is as good as mine because you're in this weird hermetically sealed environment in which your your ability to pick up how people are how much of it is penetrating is is really limited. So what was your kind of impression of it from outside?
1: Um well I think that one big impression that it, that is also a ba- bad impression um, and a small impression is that the policies didn't really cut through so far. I mean, we're, we're speaking on the last day of the conference. So I know that there's been quotes by some conservative MPs saying the same thing. They can't name a single policy that's come out of conference even though there were were some of the people announcing them and you said the same thing in one of your morning call emails you'd written about them but you couldn't remember what you'd written about so I think that definitely came through and it seemed like from what I was reading that it was the same impression that people were getting within the conference as well Um, so that was a bad thing Um, another I think overriding story that came out of conference and resonated was the sort of crisis that the conservative party has with appealing to young people. Because on the one hand you had sort of like the young conservatives and the and the loyalist party members, tweeting about how vibrant you know events were for young people there and how there were queues around the block for certain events, but on the other hand you had people sh- sort of sharing pictures of empty rooms and there was a mirror front page today of a conservative um, student society. Who had said and and have done questionable things so for me, it looked like that was the biggest crisis which I can remember from last year's conservative party conference following the election result was one of the big sort of soul searching issues that people were going through in the fringe on the fringe
0: yeah and that was definitely a kind of i mean whether or not it is a problem or not is is a sort of I guess I thing we should move on to but mm. this they had more delegates at this conference than any other uh but for context, so did Labour. And mm-hmm. the Conservative Party had 6,000 delegates at this one. The Labour Party has 13,000. The amusing subplot to that, from a Labour perspective, is allegedly they're going back to Brighton next year. It's heavily rumoured by people on the NEC that they think they're going to have to not go back to Brighton because they don't. They basically think they're going to end up in this situation where only Liverpool is the conference venue big enough to.
1: Oh wow! accommodate all
0: of the delegates which will be interesting because of course if you are um the echo arena and you know that you are the only conference venue in the country big enough to accommodate a party you know little pound signs are gonna start appearing <laughs> yeah, you in can your eyes. What you like. the weird thing is and i feel bad about saying this because i i really don't like um this yeah a couple of articles just being like you know all oh, these 15 year old tories who look so weird and it's just mm. like i mean you're a you're an adult man making fun of a 15 year old but i think one of the the problems having been at lots of their youth fringes is that the young people who join the conservative party are almost by definition really ill equipped for the most part there are some there were some exceptions you know some people from the floor would ask questions where it's clear they really got it but mm. a lot of the young people who join similar to I mean, obviously, with the Labour Party, it's it's more odd in a way, and the, the Labour membership is just only three years uh, younger, on average, than the Conservative membership. But yes, we weird thing, you do a fringe on, you know, how do you win over the elderly? And a bunch of people who are early retired will stand up and get very angry at the idea that loads of early retired people are buy-to-let landlords who like the Conservatives. And, and they go, well, I'm not a buy-to-let landlord. And you're just like, well, okay, fine. <laughs> but But many, many people in your cohort are. And similarly, with young conservative members, they will kind of stand up and say, the problem is that, you know, all all young people vote because they're motivated by, you know, safe spaces or whatever. And you're just like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, or the kind of, and I say this as someone who actually has a lot of respect for Liz Truss, partly because she seems to be one of the few conservatives who seems to understand that you need to make an argument and then your policies need to fit into your political argument. But her, um, you know, this generation are not, you know, you know, Doctrine Socialists, they're Uber riding Deliveroo, ordering oh, yeah. another
1: yeah, startup um, using I...
0: Freedom Fighters. There's a third yeah. one, a prize. Yeah. There will be no prize. A prize for any <laughs> listener who can tell me which the third one was without having to Google it. Um, but the the thing is, although that is true and one of the interesting things about voting intention is that The young who are overwhelmingly voting for a more left-wing party have actually much more right-wing attitudes on redistribution. Yeah, when you poll them about the idea of redistribution, they are in theory significantly to the right of the old who are voting for a a less redistributed party. But I think basically the problem with that is that people like ride-sharing, but you know what they like even more? Remaining in the European Union being, you know, not having how much of their income swallowed up in rent. And there is, there will never come a time, tar- you know, let's say the uh, Labour government, um, you know, led by Jeremy Corbyn, took action to get rid of Uber. I actually think the one of the interesting areas of consensus in the Labour Party is I think the next Labour majority government is going to make it significantly more difficult for organisations like Uber to exist in a grey area where they're kind of like, we're a startup, not a cab company. Yeah. But regardless of that, I simply do not believe that people will ever care more about how their food is delivered than they do about the economy, security, et cetera. Et cetera. So I think that's a bit of a false... Comfort for the conservatives. Yeah, Conservative I
1: comfort. also think it's it's almost like identifying a weakness for the conservatives because when they say, oh, actually, young people, you know, they love to 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 use Uber and they do all of these modern right-wing economic things. That's just admitting your own failure to harness that culture in support of your party. Like, oh, you've identified something that's true, but these young people nevertheless are voting for a different party or their their loyalties lie with 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 the European Union rather than the the course of Brexit that your party is taking. So it's almost just like identifying the problem but kind of admitting that you haven't managed to...
0: Yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. not
1: the problem, identifying something that's positive for your party but admitting that you can't harness it.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things where the number of times I heard it sort of said in a kind of, yeah, as you say, like it's kind of like a comforting thing. It's yeah. Just like, but shouldn't that shouldn't you feel worried or, or bad about that? <laughs> I mean, there were many reasons why this Conservative Party conference was a bit odd. The first, of course, is that she is not going to be around at the next election. And so there's this kind of complete lack of any sort of like, here's our dividing line, here's our vision. Mm-hmm. The second is that everyone in the party knows they're in a holding pattern, waiting to see what the shape of Brexit and the resolution of Brexit is. But the third, and I think the one which it, we I thought was both intriguing and, from a conservative perspective, the thing which would worry me the most is, yeah, as I, as I said in the email, I could not tell you what the policies that were announced were, despite the fact, and I did a blog about almost all of them. So, in fact, the only one which sticks in the mind is the fact that the threshold for a skilled immigrant is going to go up to uh, 50,000.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, a definition which excludes almost all medical professionals, almost all academics, Michelin-starred chefs outside of London are not skilled professionals but become skilled when they enter London. Classroom teachers are not skilled professionals. Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the, it, the only reason why I remember that is because of its r- ridiculousness. Yeah. The thing that you know, the Conservatives used to do well and Labour did very well in this uh, conference uh, and in the election is policies that, although I can't immediately remember all of the Labour policies, you know, when you, when you list one, you can go, oh, and then the others. Why? Because they all give off a similar sort of smell.
1: Yeah, um, they all hang together. Yeah,
0: and so you can kind of, I mean, and indeed uh, some shadow ministers who really ought, A, not to do this, but also not to admit to journalists that they do this. Some shadow ministers, you know, will, will if said they will busk policies because they know what the general sort of tone of a, a Corbyn party policy is now. Whereas that is not something that you can do if you are a conservative minister in this government because there is no theme. Yeah, and you have
1: no idea where you stand on your on your sort of pet policy. Yeah.
0: In terms of sort of your crumbling Britain beat, I'm realised I'm very much gonna say, Hey Anoush, I I I went to Birmingham and I noticed something you do all the time. (sighs) But yeah, every conference you come back newly horrified by the what's happening to all of our cities. And also the spread of homelessness from being a, you know, a phenomena all but eradicated in 2010 to a phenomena in city centers to one that is just now endemic to every part of essentially every city. And obviously, we've talked a lot about how that is something which unnerves voters, is unnerving, is just morally something which shouldn't happen in a, an economy as, as large as our own. But I think the other weird thing to me was the number of um, kind of, there are there are a series of policy bombs, as it were, and we know are, are have the potential to go off under the government. And they have done nothing about any of them, right? They're still doing this kind of full speed ahead, universal credit works fine. Uh, it's fake news to say anything otherwise. Well, it's not fake news. Uh, people are are going to be worse off uh, under universal credit, including a lot of people who voted Conservative last time and a lot of the people who they, they think they need to get to win next time.
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't get that fake news thing either because surely the point of universal credit is that you're paying people less in benefits because the whole idea of it is to make it more more make welfare more efficient isn't it well
0: i think the weird thing with with universal credit is that the the thing that the conservative party can't seem to work out so at, you know the beginning of the argument is this a treasury project to shrink the benefit bill yeah or is this a csj ids project to you know increase incentives to work and you know uh, and uh, you know all of those other things. Now, in my view, universal credit could never have worked because it is a a policy which is basically like, well, it works in theory, but does it work in practice? And I just don't think you ever can make it work in practice. But if you wanted to try, you would have had to spend a lot more money on it and ended up being spent. Obviously, in Duncan Smith lost that argument, which is part of why he quit the cabinet. But in an odd way, the Conservatives' rhetorical position has never actually moved from this idea that it is not just an exercise in reducing the... Uh, social security bill. And I think part of the problem they're going to have as it is rolled out is that, you know, a bunch of people who voted Conservative in 2015 and 2017 who thought that their anger about tax credits had been listened to in 2016, who had been assured that the government, you know, listening government, blah, 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 you know, we've heard your concern, mm-hmm. are going to be ported over to Universal Credit and these cuts that they were told they have been listened to on, they mm-hmm. will they will they will happen. happen anyway yeah. yeah and i just think that that has just the potential to as well as yeah you know, i mean it is it's a non trivial amount of money for the people who are in receipt of it so as well as it having you know, you catastrophic life impacts i i just think the government doesn't seem to have absorbed how bad it's going to be politically particularly because of this so the yeah the thing i think is interesting is you saying you know from the outside there was a lot of concern about how they're going to win over young people mm. The odd thing is, although there were lots of fringes, and I think it's one of those things where I think because journalists decided that was the story, there was lots of tweeting from those fringes. Yeah. It actually feels to me that the weird thing is, is actually to the extent that they're thinking about the election, they have this idea that, you know, in the rank and file, that, that Brexit will somehow be this event which increases the size of the Conservative coalition. Mm. Um, and the weird thing is, is that both well yeah you know, both sides of the referendum divide i think often struggle to appreciate that it is actually a cultural question for a lot of people not a uh, a policy one but there is i think a huge amount of complacency about this idea that remainers yeah you know, people with no understanding of the you know, the institutions but who basically just feel that being part of europe is part of you know who they are yeah will um will one day wake up and go well, you know, I'm still in a job, so actually I like this. Yeah. And I just don't think that will ever happen.
1: No, I mean really it's defined from the moment you woke up on that morning after the referendum result, your your emotions that you felt then. Yeah. Isn't it?
0: So I did throughout conference I uh, was you know, did the series of panels with Demos where they've basically polled, you know, all of the three all three parties voters about, you know, the remain leave question the conservatives are basically a coalition largely of leavers with a small rump of remainers who are fine with the result mm-hmm. the labor coalition is a group of people of leavers who um do not care or yeah you know, they they they're into it they don't haven't changed their mind mm-hmm. but brexit is a second order issue to them yeah and then remainers, some of whom remain is very much not a second order issue. Some of whom is a kind of cultural thing, which they see Corbyn as aligned with them on everything else. Yeah. Some of whom have accepted the result but would like it to be implemented in you know, a kind of fairer labour way. The Lib Dem coalition, obviously, you know, as you would expect, is you know well remainy. Um, the problem from a Conservative Party in terms of winning enduring parliamentary majorities is it is not clear which one of those bits of the electorate they didn't get, they could win without losing bits of the coalition. The one they currently yeah. have, yeah. You you, you can't, well, uh, well and I think the only bit, and this is why I actually have come to the view that they shouldn't try and win over mm-hmm. um, the young. Because the first, well, the first two requirements, I think, to win over the young would be one, you know, maybe not necessary to scrap tuition fees, but definitely not to have you know, a 9% mm. uh, marginal rate of taxation uh, and a huge... Uh, you know, headline bill of 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 nine k, both of which are you know quite expensive, and they're not going to do. The second would be to abandon Brexit and uh, and you know, or at least you know, go for something more conciliatory like the EEA. They're not going to do that either. No. Um, so I kind of think all that's left at that point is to go right. We're going to focus on Labour voters who voted to leave, but that means being a completely different party. Because there aren't the vote that just, you know, people who voted to leave are not economically liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is there, you know, the, there is just not an electoral coalition for that approach. And the slightly weird thing is, and obviously, I'm not someone who thinks the single market is a, a neoliberal uh, project. Uh, but it is nonetheless true that I think to be a functioning neoliberal project, you have to be in the single market. Uh um, you know, Andy Street kind of kicked off Conservative Party conference with big speech about you know all these brilliant things we've done for the West Midlands conurbation and like literally all of them. You're like requires frictionless trade with the EU. <laughs> yes, you make a car, but like the thing is, no no one in the UK, no, there is no factory in the UK which makes a car, right? You know, it will make part of a car, yeah, you know, the bulk of a car, and it will cross a border at some point and cross back. And I think, yeah, to me at least, the weird thing inside is this is a party which I think. Both hasn't absorbed the ways that Brexit will transform uh, our national project. But I don't think I've realised how Brexit transforms the type of party they have to be to win elections.
1: Yeah, and, and that comes down to something that I think you and I often talk about on this podcast and in general life as well, which is the lack of acceptance by a lot of Conservative MPs that that Brexit is is an era-defining thing. It's not just something that they have to get over in order to try and, you know, have a chance at the next election. Yeah. Um, and so that that's why I think there's that sort of, oh, and now let's win over the young. It's like, well, you, you know, you have to think about how you're going to do that in a in an era that is defined by Brexit yeah. rather than like, oh, this is another sort of electoral hump that we have to get over.
0: Yeah, I think, and that to me is one of the... I mean, okay, obviously, the the, the seven uh, Labour leavers, uh, eight, because I'm also kind of semi-including Gisela Stewart in this uh, list, even though she's obviously not in Parliament anymore. Mm-hmm. They're obviously, you know, the, the weird thing about the eight of them is they are a perfect soil sample of the ideological tendencies of the PLP. You know, you had Gisela, who's a Blairite, Calvin oh,
2: yeah, yeah, and but- Ronnie
0: Campbell are Corbynites, the old right are w- awkward Awkward sorts like Graham Stringer, uh, you know, and yeah, then Kate Hoey, who defines, uh, defies. Awkward. Uh, <laughs> uh, but because they are also quite odd because, you know, they're Labour leavers, one of the things they all have in common is that they do not see Brexit as a, a moment. Mm. Uh, they see it as a, yeah yeah something which defines the era. Whereas even most people in the ERG, yeah, do see Brexit as like a, yeah, you know, kind of, and then with one bound they were free. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, um,
0: yeah. And it is a, I mean, this is the thing: is that one of the interesting political um, tides, I think, is that Brexit is ultimately a revolutionary moment because it upends our economic model and it upends many of the presuppositions of both centre-left and centre-right policymaking for the last uh, however many years that we've been in the European Communities, um, and. Basically, the Labour Party, whether they've accepted it and gone, well, we don't want our economic model to change in this way, so we need to maintain our single market membership, or they're going, okay, our economic model is going to change, and hence the radical platform of Corbynism. But the Labour Party has come to terms with that. The Conservative Party has not come to terms with that, other than actually, it must be said, a small group of people around Theresa May, who that's the reason why they privately don't like Brexit, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah right.
1: exactly. But that hasn't really manifested itself in anything that well, they've done.
0: Because this is the thing: because she can't. Well, the thing—I mean, there are many things I find deeply strange about Theresa May. But she's obviously highly unwilling to say that she doesn't like Brexit. Uh, sorry, she. But she's also unwilling to just go. Of course, things will be better off afterwards.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and I think that that unwillingness to do either a means that her own historical reputation is not going to be great which, you know, is odd because you think, know, yeah on the whole, politicians tend to worry about that kind of thing. But two, it's part of why the party is sort of stuck in this intellectual cul-de-sac because they can't go, look, the Conservative Party as we know it is not going to be a viable entity for winning and holding majority government. yeah um, Because that involves saying difficult things about Brexit. They can't go, yeah, Singapore, because that involves saying things about Brexit and she doesn't believe, which means they just end up where they've been all weak. The-
1: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
2: And now, hello, it's me, Helen, and I'm joined by uh, Anoush. Anoush, we're recording this as Boris Johnson is speaking at a fringe meeting. I mean,
1: wow. This is real time. Where are we when Boris politics. Johnson spoke
2: at a fringe meeting? That's going to be like <laughs> the moon landings. Um, but nonetheless, I sort of, okay, this is a really bad admission to make for a political journalist. I've sort of opted out on the basis that I know what he's going to. Oh, no, really? Is Boris Johnson making a blatant bid for the leadership by setting out like a little bit of social liberalism, some red you know, meat for the Tory shires, some kind of kooky, like counterintuitive policy, and then loads of sort of chess beating about Brexit? Wow. I mean, it's totally it's totally bizarre because I've been going to Tory conference
1: since 2012. And every year that's been the <laughs> Boris Johnson story. And it's so funny to see the difference between the members, so like the delegates who go to Tory conference because they're members of the party, the difference between their attitude to Boris Johnson, which is queuing round the block to every fringe event or every speech he makes, and the attitude of Tory MPs who, on the whole... Roll their eyes. And yeah, like, oh. are not a fan. Um, which um, is why this whole thing about him being leader is... Pretty impossible.
2: Um, well, yeah, I guess that it's the kind of control the shortlist point, right? Which is that what would have stopped Corbyn becoming Labour leader is if he'd been kept off the shortlist. If, I think the the Tories exactly. are now, for that reason and other, have always been much more alert to the idea that if you release him into the wild he might, I was going to say, he might start breeding uncontrollably, but that's (laughs) really not a good metaphor in the circumstances. Yeah, you don't need to release him
1: into the wild to do that.
2: (laughs) But they, so they know that if he made the final two, then, you know, in the same way that they're pretty confident that if Jacob Rees-Mogg made the final two, they really, no one would bet against the Tory members.
1: Exactly, yeah, it's the swivel-eyed loons.
2: Can I just have a shout out to regular podcast listener, Duncan Robinson of The Economist, who's got a great theory about Jacob Rees-Mogg that I wholeheartedly endorse. I don't know
1: this theory. What is it? It's
2: why his suits are so loose is that he thinks that he's probably totally ripped, like a total, (laughs) quote, a total gym rat. All he does is like, uh, for the journalists, obviously he pretends that he eats his children's fish fingers, but actually he just drinks Huel. (laughs) But he knows But it he re-
1: can't admit it Because right. it ruins his Terrible his persona for his brand his, yeah. yeah His kind of like Vampire lord brand
2: Right And I think that's a great rumour A great untrue rumour <laughs> And one which I would like to spread And it's not Some unkind news for you guys It's not unkind No no So I think we should spread it As far as why well. And that should be the Like that should be our You know Underneath the double-breasted suit He's got rippling abs <laughs> And that's where he is And the thing I wanted to talk to you About Boris Johnson though Is I find the Telegraph's coverage Of him absolutely extraordinary I mean he would barely like let the door slam behind him on his way out of the cabinet before he was back in that Telegraph column presumably being paid a pretty decent amount of money for it and now the attitude to him is like it you know his columns are like front page splashes which to me just tips over the balance between wow we've got a celebrity columnist who makes news and mm. we are now I think the I call it the Daily Boris graph <laughs> and it's just it's one of those things where if you imagine it happening in imagine it happening in like Ghana right or somewhere like actually probably somewhere slightly less good democratic institutions you'd just be like the wait hang a minute the, the foreign minister former foreign minister and you know leadership challenger has got his own newspaper like on this yeah, like, I mean, kind of an armed wing of his election campaign well we That's can just compare weird. that
1: to a real life example because they did or still do have William Hague, former foreign secretary, writing a column in their paper. But they treat that in a more normal way. You know, if you have a sort of former big beast, as we call them in inverted commas, you know, former politicians who still carry some weight with their opinions because they've been in the top tiers of of power, you cover that as news sometimes when they say something interesting. But with Boris Johnson, he's the same thing. He's a f- former foreign secretary and he's now a backbench MP, you know. so But they cover it like it's the prime minister has announced something every time he writes.
2: And with like these big photos of him as well, right? It's That's the thing. It's often, yeah. I think it's, if in terms of newspaper grammar you get the kind of wipe out front page with a massive photo and then a big quote which is usually core cribbins oops a daisy let's have some great brexit <laughs> yeah and then in small print boris johnson page 14 yeah yeah <laughs> like rather than just you know kind of britain needs to you know britain will have food shortages after brexit johnson says yeah. as a like a sober headline Once former minister yeah. you know like you
1: would normally cover a story like that i mean we do as a whole, the press is guilty of giving too much weight to the opinions of people who were once in power because they're the people who are more likely to say things off message. And so you do obviously chase people like John Major for, for stories on what the current government is doing. But the Telegraph has taken that to a whole new level, especially as, as we've just said, it's quite unlikely that Boris Johnson is ever going to be
2: Tory leader or prime mm, minister. I just think bad things happen. Am I, I jinxing things? There has been a lesson in the last couple of years it's that bad things do happen. No, and I think genuinely it would be a cataclysm in the PLP. As you say, the interesting thing about party conference, uh, a cataclysm comparable to the one in the PLP over Corbyn, right? Yeah, As in there okay. are people who not just disagree with his politics but find him actually quite a worrying figure in his bluster and lies and disdain for democratic norms. You know, you I think uh, Anna Subri has sort of said, I'd I find it difficult to be in this party, um, Heidi Allen there are other examples of people who I think would just be very uncomfortable with that. And, you know, In the same way, they'd be uncomfortable with someone with the extremely hardline religiously motivated views of Jacob Rees-Mogg.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, people have said that they wouldn't stay in the Conservative Party if, if one of
2: those two became leader. Which brings us to the point that perhaps history's greatest hero, Michael Gove. <laughs> <laughs> Things you didn't expect to see on the New Statesman podcast. One, because he reversed most of Chris Grayling's decisions and justice.
1: Yeah, that was pretty good actually. That was a good gove move. Yeah. Yeah. Gove always believe
2: in your soul, and two because he detonated himself, and therefore Boris Johnson in actually the best three and a half hours of British politics that I've experienced in my lifetime. Yeah, that is the joy of covering the Tories because I don't because I don't want any of them to win. It's, it's really relaxing. You're like, oh wow, you're it's all, good when they destroy each other. Yeah. yeah. Oh contender ready. <laughs> um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the new left media, because there's been this story bubbling up that the NUJ has uh, a Black History Month le- uh, lecture, which they have uh, invited Kerry Mendoza of the Canary to deliver. And now they asked the Guardian's NUJ committee to let that happen on in the Guardian offices in, in King's Place. There was some, I think we should say when this was announced, there was some distress among Guardian staffers because the Canary is sometimes a little what I would call fact averse certainly has very heavily leaned into the idea that any criticism of Jeremy Corbyn over anti-Semitism is a sort of media smear. I think their way of covering Laura Kunzberg at the BBC tips over from media criticism into sort of a kind of personalised hate campaign against her. And then... Excellently, the response to this news—I am I'm, I'm sure—totally coincidentally, after the backlash was announced, was that the Canary published an article calling for a boycott of the Guardian because of its anti-Semitism coverage. Completely, I'm sure, completely coincidental from the diss they had just delivered to to its editor. Now, I, you know, I, I have, I have beefed in the past in in an intermediate way, but. I don't know. I, you've spent a lot of time covering the, more of the new left media. Am I unduly harsh on some of them? And should we make a distinction between the ones that most normally get grouped together, Canary, Evolve Politics, Squawk Box, then on the more intellectual side, Novara?
1: Yeah, I think that that is definitely a distinction that should be drawn and they would themselves. So one of the interesting things from talking to the new left media for a couple of years now has has been that Websites like The Canary admit freely that they are the tab they want to be the tabloid of the left. They think the mirror that is too mainstream and, and um too toothless. And so they want to be the sort of scurrilous, oh, you know, little bit loose with facts, um, trying to make punchy headlines, trying to get clicks, going after people, you know, they want to be a little bit like that the sun style, mischievous and sometimes quite nasty equivalent. Mm. Um, and so they don't really hide that. But when they get treated like they are like that, they obviously act like the victim and, and they say that they're they're doing things for the for the greater good. So the boycott the Guardian campaign is a little bit of a wounded victimhood style response to, you know, legitimately Guardian journalists wanting someone like Carrie Ann Mendoza not to speak, presumably because they don't agree with her journalistic ethics rather than anything else. But then of course the follow-on from that should be that they wouldn't want anyone from the sun to come and speak, for example. So it is difficult. It's, it's not like clear-cut. But I do think that, you know, like we were talking about the telegraph, they've become cheerleaders for an individual politician who has quite hardline ideological views. And so the new left media, things like Squawk Box and the Canary, can point to that and say, well, you know, some really powerful papers cheerlead from, for really influential politicians. Why shouldn't we? give sort of uncompromisingly positive coverage of Jeremy Corbyn, seeing as he doesn't get that anywhere else.
2: That's the thing I find it really difficult to, to get my head around, is that, yeah, is that it, it, it was basically an arms race, right? And it, the kind of justification is, well, the Telegraph treat Boris Johnson like this, so why isn't there a, a, a version of that on the left? And I guess it kind of, it always reminds me of the bit, the argument that um, the Obama campaign had over, they wanted to ban uh, like big donations, right? But then when they were running their campaign in 2008, ended up taking these big donations. They were basically like, I have to fight the, you know, the, the game, like in the rules that the current, you know, that there's only one way to win. You can't you can't opt out of that. So I think that's very difficult. It's very difficult to sort of say print in a sort of principled fashion in a commercial environment, oh, actually, everybody should just, you know, they shouldn't be partisan when we know that being partisan, particularly through Facebook, is such a goldmine.
1: Exactly. And also I think journalists, mainstream journalists, need to be careful not to just feel like they're a bit threatened and to feel like they're the ones who are in the legitimate club and newcomers aren't. So I remember when Evolve Politics, which is sort of a slightly less um, zealous new left media site, um, got given a lobby pass so that their reporter could be party to the briefings and things in parliament. There were so many people who in the more established press were outraged by this,
2: which I don't think is a good look. (laughs) Mm, That's interesting, because I think there was a point about... Uh, the one thing that I guess the last couple of years has taught us is there is a role for gatekeepers, yeah, and that you shouldn't, you know, and uh, you know that you you shouldn't just sort of let things go. But equally well, I think I'm a, in a way I'm sort of more surprised that Evolve wanted that lobby pass because, you know, your whole cachet in that situation is you're the outsider. You're not. You're setting yourself in opposition to the establishment. So kind of go. I mean. But then they're upfront about that as well. They want to be the mainstream. They want to
1: be the places that people come to to read their political news.
2: Yeah, which is more like I don't want to bring down the establishment. I want a new establishment, which is always the kind of argument about revolutionary politics, right, is actually do you want to destroy the, you know, like this about social mobility or anything like that, you know, do you want to destroy income inequality or do you just want to make sure that the right, you know, the most clever people, whatever it is, the most meritocratic system you have, then people rise to the top. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is always that argument. Yeah, I, I don't know how... I, I I definitely feel very queasy when I look at those Telegraph front pages because it just feels so Banana Republic. Yeah, it really does. And not the good Banana Republic, even though its sizing is, I think, a bit small. <laughs> I agree with that. We can agree on something. Yeah, haven't. finally consensus is achieved. <laughs> Zara, too. yeah, better, <laughs> And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Do you know, I met somebody last night who listens to the podcast and they were like, I really like the way that over a series of years you've like worn Stephen down.
1: He doesn't complain about it
2: anymore. No, he used to be like, you ask us. (laughs) Now now at least there's a sort of a little flicker of enjoyment. Um, This comes from (laughs) Tim Spaulding who says, should we still listen to Kanye's music after what he said? Oh, sorry, yee. Ye. Ye oldie Kanye. <laughs> uh, after what he said about slavery and Trump, or are we too quick to shut down debate and define people by one thing we disagree with? Also consider Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K. and Jordan Peterson. For anybody who's missed the latest Kanye Irish, he did one of those absolutely baffling Kanye things where it's like all the signals are so completely mixed that you just think, what? So he, I'm going to get the amendment wrong. I think the 23rd Amendment was the one that banned slavery. He said basically he was wearing a MAGA hat on a private jet saying the great thing about Donald Trump is that he will bring jobs back to America. Someone pointed out that all of his Yeezy clothes are made in China. <laughs> so it's so like... Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, you're... What are you on? You're one of, like, America's most famous black artists and you're now saying that, actually, maybe let's consider the upsides to slavery. What?
1: Yeah.
2: Now, none it's part of, of a
1: pattern, though, with him, isn't it? He's said similar Well, I just think
2: it's one of those things where... Yeah, I just think he just likes to tweet. Yeah. You know, was like, like, the great thing when someone did a, a tweet about Donald Trump, that's like, I think maybe we should consider instead of like he's playing 12 dimensional chess, maybe the guy just really likes to tweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I sort of feel the same about I think, Kanye. I think trying to look for any kind of, in in, you know, I think his work is often really interesting and there are songs of his that have really quite profound things to say, particularly about race in America, but I don't think his Twitter presence is where I would look to for a kind of great ideological outline of his beliefs. Yeah. So I don't have a problem and therefore I will still listen to Gold Digger mm-hmm. which I once accidentally pressed play on when Richard Dawkins was guest editing. You know, I had it, it was like queued up next to play on my um, phone and I accidentally pressed play on it and I had to walk into a meeting with Richard Dawkins to the streets <laughs> <That bit laughs> with Jamie Fox sings at the beginning <laughs> of it. I don't think he appreciated it. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and Kevin Spacey's is the same. So Judy Dench had a quote about Kevin Spacey, which is like, you know, about him being wiped out of that film, basically being re-edited uh, and saying, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to kind of take everything out of the canon? Are we going to completely strip him from the record? Which is kind of the same argument about the, that Roads Must Fall was addressing as well, right? About how much can you rewrite history and to me, there's two different things. One is actually trying more to contextualize history, mm-hmm. um, and I think Mary Beard's suggestion about you know that that you should just take the I think it was Mary Beard's suggestion, which was that they should keep the Rhodes statue up because it is a part of their history, but they should take the anti-pigeon netting off it and just let pigeon shit all over it. <laughs> yeah, I sort of that. kind of like yeah. And I think that's the thing about those Confederate statues in the U.S. is that I had no idea is that they're often really Cheap. They were like cheaply mass-produced mm-hmm. after the end mm-hmm. of the Civil War as an attempt to be like, oh, let's let's keep the flame alive. So I think you have to acknowledge in knack. This is so. This is my dividing line, and it's the same thing with with artists. If it is coincidental to the art that they are a bastard, I'm okay with it. But if part of the art is a project of rehabilitating them or promoting their views that I find unacceptable, that's the line when I don't want to consume them uncritically. Yeah. So Kevin Spacey. I think, in being in a film, I don't think is an endorsement of Kevin Spacey's sexual politics, particularly. Like, I don't, I would, you know, any new films that he's been made, but going back and watching American Beauty, I don't feel is a kind of an endorsement of, of that. However, in the case of those Confederate statues, I think it's different because they clearly were part of a political project and putting them up. There's no reason for them to be up. They're not actually, They, you know, they are a kind of falsification of history themselves. And ditto, you know, when I think about, I'm quite queasy about watching uh, the films of Woody Allen that are about endorsing his viewpoint in yeah. regards to the treatment of women. I mean, they're still good films, but I, I will always watch them with that in mind. And you were talking earlier about Morrissey. I think that's... Yeah, so Morrissey, I re- you know, I'm someone who loved loves the Smiths and
1: Morrissey. And um, obviously he said some very far-right, dodgy things about Islam and... And he's just come up. He's just come back as this kind of national front kind of figure. And my theory is, first of all, you have to accept that you yourself are not pure, and everyone is a hypocrite. And you're allowed to enjoy things that are that are problematic if you do it in your own time, and you're not promoting someone or like actively, you know, giving them money or anything like that. Um, but also, why should why should I suffer more? Because of Morrissey, like, why can't I listen to his music? He's already made me suffer by by being insufferable with his views. Why can't I listen to his music?
2: <laughs> Do you <laughs> see what I mean? Yeah. Like, why should he make me suffer more? <laughs> my my tokenistic attempt to reckon with this is that I have, I now exclusively listen to Placebo's version of Big Mouth Strikes again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, how that's I, fine. <laughs> that's my, my, my left wing endorsement for the day. But I agree with you. But also that when you said that, it made me think that so much of this depends on a kind of uh, implicit great man theory of history, right? Mm. As if the Smith is only Morrissey and that's yeah. it and, and 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 therefore his presence poisons everybody else's. And the same thing with these films. It's like we so much get into kind of auteur theory and particularly attributing everything to the director of the film, right? Yeah. Or the star of the film as being what that film is kind of about. And everything is so much more collective. I know this is this is a classic New States and podcast answer, which is like, isn't everything extraordinarily complicated when yeah. you think about yeah. it? But Yeah, but I, yeah, I don't. And it does start sounding like we're making excuses just to
1: like watch a film that we can't quite like or listen to some music that we used to like when we were teenagers, Um, which I also think is fine. I don't see why these men should interfere with our enjoyment, basically.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that that could be written on my gravestone. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Anil. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. Our theme music is by the underscore orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not send us a You Ask Us or a suggestion for the musical style in which you would like to hear Stephen Bush deliver You Ask Us? We're at StephenKB and at Helen Lewis on Twitter.